Good morning. We are in Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the very word of God. The Winter Olympics are about to start. And uh, anybody going to watch? Nobody's watching. Okay, yeah, there's a few of you out there. Uh, what's always fun or interesting to me about the Olympics is watching these athletes just before they compete and what they do to get themselves ready for the competition. Of course, especially in the Olympics, athletes from different cultures, different nations, different customs. Uh, but there's a few things that it seemed like uh, is pretty common to athletes. A lot of athletes, it seems, get themselves ready by listening to music. They got their, what are those things called? Ear pod, pod things? You know, whatever. Earbuds. Headphones. Uh, and they're listening to music. Got to get pumped up. My children tell me that's what that means. Um, my, my favorite is probably watching the weightlifters because like right before they go lift, they start smacking themselves all over their bodies. And when they do the lift, like the loud screams, it's like, yeah, that's how you get pumped up. Now, all of us have to get ourselves ready every day for what it is we're going to face. What are your customs? Maybe you listen to music. Maybe you, you know, yell at yourself and pound your chest in the mirror, guys. I know you do. I know you do. Don't ask me how I know, but I know you do. <laughs> I want to help you this morning get ready for the competition. As we bring to a close our study of the eighth chapter of Romans, which, by the way, may be the best chapter in the entire Bible, if you could say such a thing. As we bring it to a close, I am reminded by these words that I read in a commentary a while back. The task of teaching Christian people to think and live 
on the basis of a unique event that happened in the first century, but that was the turning point of cosmic history, is therefore, hard though it may seem, one of the most challenging but necessary tasks facing a preacher and teacher today. My job is to help us all to think and to live on the basis of a unique event that happened in the first century, but that was the turning point of cosmic history. My task is to help us get pumped up, to get ready every day of your life, every task, every relationship, every circumstance, to think and to live on the basis of that unique event. It's a challenging task, but it's necessary. So here's what I hope to do this morning. I hope, by the grace of God, to demonstrate that the incomparable love of God for his people, that's you and me, Christian, gives to us the assurance that we belong to the invincible family of God. And this is the kind of Christian assurance that is the fruit of saving faith. I want every Christian, but especially since this is my calling, the Christians in this church, I want us to see Romans 8, and especially in these last 10 verses, I want you to see these are your verses. This is This is how you can think and live on the basis of a unique event that happened in the first century. I want every Christian to know, as one of the historic Christian confessions says, that you may in this life be certainly assured that you are in a state of grace and that you may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That will pump you up. That will get you ready for whatever it is God is calling you to face. Like, like, a, like the coach before the athlete makes the lift, I want to say, you got this. You can do it, Christian. And these verses point the way forward toward this Christian assurance by reminding us that God is for us that Christ died for us and that the Holy Spirit has united us forever to the one true and living God. God is for us. Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit has united us. Need a mantra for the day? There's a good one. God is for us. Christ died for us and the Holy Spirit has united us. So we begin here with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul is speaking here by these things, not only to the last few verses, though if Romans 8.28 is true, then it by itself is enough to lead us to what Paul says next. But these things, Paul, I think, has in mind 
are everything that he's been saying at least since Romans chapter 5. Because his thesis, if you turn back to Romans 5, has been in these four chapters, if we've been justified by faith, we are at peace. We're at peace with God, Romans 5.1, and we have so much to look forward to, Romans 5.2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans uh, 5.2 says, and by the way, our sufferings in this life cannot take us down because even they, even they become fruit-bearing tools in the hands of God whose love for us has been poured into our hearts, Romans 5, 3 through 5, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Romans 5, 1 through 5 sets up the, the thesis that Paul has been unpacking for four chapters. And now we've come to the end. And if we miss what Paul has been doing all along, we will undoubtedly not have the same assurance that Paul has when he says in this text, if God is for us, who can be against us? So you got to keep all that in mind. I know that's hard, right? Like we've spent a lot of weeks going through those chapters. But let's see if we can jump in here. To say that God is for us has got to be the ultimate claim of confidence, don't you think? I mean, if we've got God on our side, then we know. We are on the winning side every time. There simply is no one or no thing that could ever succeed in opposing us. But how do we know that God is for us? Plenty of Christians, just like you and me, are tempted to doubt this, especially when the circumstances of life make us wonder, well, maybe God is angry. Or maybe God just doesn't care. This is a problem, by the way, that comes, and it comes to all of us. There's no shame or condemnation on you if that's how you feel this morning. But the, the truth is, I can say to you on the authority of what we're reading in these verses and in these chapters, the truth is, that kind of conclusion, Christian, if that's what you're entertaining in your mind, the problem is you're nearsighted. The previous verses that we looked at last week in verses 28 to 30 in particular are meant to keep our focus on the whole scheme of God's work. All things we saw work together for good, but of course this does not mean things, all things are inherently good. God is up to something in verses 29 to 30, make it plain what it is God is up to so we cannot conclude prematurely that God is, in the circumstances of your life, has failed or has turned against you. The final word simply has not been said. And while plenty of us will be tempted to do such a thing, countless other Christians right now in various places all over the planet are drawing sustaining strength to endure greater battles than you are facing and trials of their faith with these verses, with the purpose of God described in Romans 8, 29 to 30 in view. And so we best learn to do the same. But Paul tells us more in these verses. Here in verse 32, he reminds us of the clearest evidence that we could possibly have that God is for us. How do you know, Christian? 
I'm talking to you. How do you know God is for you? That God is on your side. How can you know? Verse 32 tells us, and and here in verse 32, Paul uses a little Greek word that puts the spotlight on the first thing that he says in the text. And it's our most of our English translations can't do this, but word order in Greek is massively important. And so forgive me, but here's literally how Paul writes verse 32. He who even his own son did not spare, but for us all gave him up. So that little Greek word is putting the spotlight, the emphasis on the words, his own son. Why does Paul do that? Most scholars, most commentators will tell you that the language here is reminiscent of a Old Testament story. Amen, but that's not the story. Can you think back into the Old Testament where you hear he didn't spare even his own son? Yeah, this is the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of his son Isaac in Genesis 22. That story, you remember it, is shocking. Shocking. You're, you're reading along in the Bible. If you don't know anything about God and you're just reading through Genesis, <laughs> the first time you've ever heard about this God, all of a sudden, this God says, Abraham, take your son. Remember that promised son, that son I gave you, that only son that you love. And, and kill him, sacrifice him to me. And you're stunned, you're shocked. Do you remember that? One of the things that story clearly demonstrates is the extent of Abraham's love for God. He was willing to give to God his greatest treasure on earth. Now that's the story Paul has in mind when he writes Romans 8, 32. And now just consider then, how God feels about you, Christian. The genuine love that he has for you in that God has not withheld even his own son from you. God gave us his all when he gave us his son. That is how you know God is for you. What greater evidence could there be? Now, let me just tarry here for a moment. I hope you do not see in the sacrificial language that's used here the idea that God felt obligated to give his son for us. There's no doubt in the, from the biblical text that Abraham loved his son Isaac as much as any father could love his son. The comparison that's being made to that story in God's own giving of his son is there to put a spotlight on God's incomparable love for us. But the story of the gospel is not seen in all its glory. If somehow in your mind you think of what God has done in giving his son as something like a rich father who has to pay an exorbitant sum to get his prodigal child out of jail. The problem in that story being the 
profligate lifestyle of the prodigal. You know, the rich dad is like, this kind of kid is an embarrassment to me, so I'll pay this great sum. I mean, I love my kid, but oh my goodness. Like some of you, that's how you think of God. That's what you think God did when he gave his son for you. Instead, the story of the gospel is the story of our gracious God torpedoing the compound of our cruel taskmaster because he saw you and said, mine. I want him. I want her. Again, remember that all throughout Romans 8 in particular, but all throughout Romans, Paul is, re, is bringing to mind the story of the exodus. This is the theme that lies behind so much of Romans 8. God is for us. He does not merely tolerate us. The gospel in which God gives even his own son for you is a tremendous love story. A story in which God, whose love for his own son could never be questioned. Just like you can't question that Abraham loved his son Isaac, there is no question that God infinitely loves his son. So what does it mean then when God displays the enormous scope of his love precisely in giving that own son for you? God is for us because God loves us. I mean, he really loves us. He really loves you. So if God really loves us, then the story that you're in right now is not over. There's a glory coming that we simply cannot comprehend. The argument in verse 32 is, you'll recognize it, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has already given to you his greatest gift, then you can expect he will not withhold anything that's less than that. You know, like everything. <laughs> everything. God has held absolutely nothing good from you. Nothing. He gave his own son to us. But look what it says. This is amazing what Romans 8, 3. Some of you have it memorized. And every time I recite it, I'm always like, there's this weird little part in there that just gets my attention every time. He gave his own son to us, not just for us, but look, it is also with him that he will certainly graciously give us all things. Yes, the knife went through the Son of God. He died for us. But this was not because God said, well, I guess I'll pick you all over my son. No, no. God raised Jesus from the dead. The extraordinary love of God for us is not that God loved you more than he loved Jesus. After all, what assurance would that be? If the God that we worship is a father who's willing to go kill his son to take you instead, leave him dead, I'll take you. You want that kind of God? This is a God who raised Jesus, as by the way, Abraham assumed that God would do for Isaac had he gone through with the shocking sacrifice and with him brings you and me into the royal family. That's what God has done. So again now, see the heart of God for you, Christian. I'm trying. I'm trying my best. 
to help you see the heart of God for you. The all things here in Romans 8.32 must certainly be comprehensive because we possess the son of God himself, crucified and risen. Everything in our lives then is turned for our good, for our benefit, even our enjoyment, only because, but precisely because, you have been united to the one he loves. Jesus is not simply the debt paid for our sins. He is that, but he is also the source of our everlasting joy and freedom. We are, as verse 17 says, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. This is the gospel promise and believing it gives us the assurance that no one could possibly stand against us. No one. But now, Moving on to verses 33 to 34, we see another way that Christian assurance will grow. God is for us, yes, and remember what it means that Christ died for us. It means there can be no charge, no accusation against us. And therefore, there can be no cause of condemnation either. God is for us. Christ died for us. What does that mean? Here in these two verses, we're back into the judicial setting that I think most of us are most familiar with when we think of the gospel story. But in this setting, get it in your mind's eye. You're in the courtroom. In this setting, God clearly takes up the role as the judge. No doubt about that. You and I, with the rest of humanity, are the ones who stand on trial. No doubt about that. But what Paul has emphasized in this scene, in Romans, is something that I think you and I don't usually see. We haven't ignored this. Christians know, what I'm about to say, you know it's true, but I, I, I think, if you're like me, in this courtroom scene, there's something that Paul is emphasizing, highlighting, that we usually don't think of. At least not enough. If I'm correct, then we usually think of how we are in fact guilty, deserving of wrath and condemnation. But then we think Jesus stands up, pays the penalty in our place, and we are declared not guilty. That's probably how we think of that courtroom scene. Am I close? Is that how you think of it? It's not wrong. Don't worry. <laughs> That's right. But Paul's emphasis in Romans is elsewhere. Notice in our passage, this is striking, that Paul does not say what can be against us. Paul does not say what can condemn us. Later, he does not say what can separate us from the love of Christ. The question throughout is who? rather than what? This demonstrates, as we've been saying all along, that what Paul wants to emphasize is it's a personal entity. It's not an impersonal circumstance. I stand condemned in sin, in sin, sin, and God does something about my sin. Yes, 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 it's true. But Paul has been emphasizing who, not what. The problem has been resolved by the silencing of a who. 
an accuser in the court. So remember Romans 8.1, the announcement that opened the chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this has been expounded and explained throughout Romans 8. But in particular, we noted verse 3, Romans 8.3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned who in the flesh? And the answer he gives there is sin. Who? Yeah, see on the cross, in the flesh of the Messiah, it was our accuser, sin personified, that mysterious dark power that we know as Satan, the accuser, or the devil, our adversary, the sly serpent in the Garden of Eden has had on the cross his head crushed by the offspring of the woman, just as God promised all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. Do you see why Paul is so excited? Do you see why Paul is so pumped up? This is the long-awaited promise all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It is done. It is done. And just like the woman taken in adultery in John 8, Jesus has turned the tables. There's no question that we, like the woman, are guilty. But when the stone has hit our accuser, square in the head like David's missile fired at Goliath. We find ourselves like the woman standing alone with Jesus and we hear these words. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And we with the woman says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Every time. Gotcha, didn't I? Every single time the accuser says, hey, Jesus stands up and says, oh, really? You're going to bring an accusation, Satan? Like after I just dropped you on your face? This is the astounding promise of the gospel. There is no one left to bring a charge against us since God has justified us. This God whose own righteousness has now been vindicated has justly vindicated you and me. So there is no one left to condemn us given the scope of what the Messiah has done for us. Not only did he die for our trespasses, but even more, verse 34 says, he was raised for our justification. He's not dead, so where is he? Where is he? He is, even now, at the right hand of God and is presently interceding for us, verse 34 concludes. So with this one on our side, with this one representing us, there simply is no one left to accuse no one left who can condemn. <laughs> you can laugh in the face of your accuser like that woman must have gone home doing. There's no one left to condemn. Christ has set us free. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? 
So what this means for you and me, brothers and sisters, is that, yes, you, you do have heaven to look forward to when you die. That's true and good. It's a great comfort for us and every brother and sister in Christ when our time to draw our last breath has come. But don't you see that the hope then that we have is not heaven, but heaven on earth? A resurrected life in the full enjoyment of the kingdom of God, life in God's created world as full human beings, life that God has always intended for us to have. But get this, the fact that sin, that is Satan, has already been condemned means that we have the privilege of experiencing tastes, like real tastes of the kingdom of heaven on earth now. Oh, I'm trying to help us get this. I'm trying to pump you up this morning (laughs) because the promise of the gospel, the accomplishment, the achievement of Christ crucified and already risen means that if Jesus has brought condemnation on the dark power of evil, the sinister power of sin, then the promised future has already broken in on the present. And this provides even more assurance in our Christian faith. So I want you to see lastly, Christian assurance grows because God is for us, Christ died for us, and all that that means, but also it is God's own Holy Spirit who has already united you and me to the incomparable love of God in Christ. Think of it. You and I are united to the triune God by God. (laughs) And what God has joined together, who can separate? And you know the answer, no one, no one. So verse 35 asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And verse 39 answers with a resounding, nothing, no one. No way. Now, I hope you're looking at your Bible right now because I say that the Spirit is in view in these verses. I'm talking about Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. So just glance at them and somebody tell me in what verse you see the Holy Spirit. Pastor Jod's being smarty pants over here. You're not crazy if you look at it and say, um, Ben, hate to break it to you. The Holy Spirit's not here. Okay, fair enough. But the Spirit has been a predominant theme all throughout Romans 8, right? I mean, this, Romans 8 is the chapter of Paul's theology of the Holy Spirit. That is more to say, of course. But like, if you want to know, what does Paul think of the Holy Spirit? Romans 8 is a pretty good place to go. 
Holy Spirit has just been everywhere in Romans 8. And, and by the way, remember the thesis statement, Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5, that we're saying this is the conclusion to, that Paul has been unpacking all along? Romans 5, 5 says it is through the Holy Spirit that God's love has been poured into our hearts. If you know, if somehow, by the grace of God this morning, you felt a little, love is a feeling too, it, it is. So if you somehow felt like, oh, he loves me. If somehow that came true, it was not because of my convincing words, it was because of the power of God's own Holy Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit that God's love is poured into our hearts. So if we understand that the Spirit must be the one in view here, since the theme quite clearly in these verses is what can separate, who can separate us from the love of Christ if the Spirit is in view here, then we can see the Trinitarian shape has been brought to completion. God is for us. Christ has died for us and the Holy Spirit now binds us to the love of God so there can be no possible way for us to be separated from the love of God. The present reality of what has been done for us in Christ Jesus has been emphasized throughout Romans 8 as our now living in the Spirit. We now live in the spirit. And what we said that means is that we now live in the promised eschatological age of the new covenant. You and I now, right now, since Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again, the future has dawned. This is what Christians believe. The promised future has already broken in on the present. The new covenant that the prophets longed to see come into reality has been inaugurated. And what is the new covenant? It means in the new covenant that God and his people are reconciled. Peace with God. And every, every first century Jew knew that when that happens, the Shekinah, glory of God, would return to his temple. Remember what we saw what that means? The New Testament makes it clear. That temple is us, his body, his church. It is in the church where we are primarily meant to experience and not just hear about the love of God. You didn't hear that. It is in the church where we are primarily meant to experience and not just hear about the love of God. How, how do you experience it? How does the Spirit help us feel it? The answer is in the corporate worship of God and in the communion that we share with its people. It's why, Christian, you simply must come, gather together every Lord's Day. Don't miss it. I mean, you know, if you've got COVID symptoms, you know, okay, all right. We, 
that this matters. It matters. It's simply why we must come together each week for worship. And by the way, it's why we must, just like the first century church knew, we must regularly gather together in our homes for fellowship. This is a big deal. Oh, great. Here's a preacher just condemning me for not coming to church. Okay, I mean, you have no condemnation in Christ. I'm trying to pump you up. I'm trying to get you ready for the challenges that are heading your way because they are coming. These are the primary means by which God intends to grow us in the assurance of his love. We ignore God's ordinary means of grace to our peril. Because as the beloved children of God, we live by the Spirit. The children of God are those who, according to Romans 8, 14, are led by the Spirit of God. Living by the Spirit, we become more and more assured of God's love. But what about those sufferings? What about those those trials that come into my life? Those are the things that make me question, right? Does God really love me? Now, Now look. The celebratory tone with which Romans 8 comes to a close, and by the way, these are very celebratory, right? In the service, in the prayer before we came out, Caleb said he was was picking songs for this service. By the way, um, our worship leaders do that. I hope you pick up on themes as you think back on what did we sing today? What's the sermon? What's the passage about? And he said, I, I read these verses, I just, all I could think of was victory, victory. Yeah, that, that's it. But he didn't miss it. <laughs> you feel it? Triumph. The, these verses are all about that. Nevertheless, the celebratory tone with which Romans 8 comes to a close is not without the realism of what that old serpent still tries to fling in our faces. The list of sufferings in verse 35 are not chosen at random. These come from the writer's own experience. You look at each one of them. Paul faced them all. He knows what he's talking about. And his citation of Psalm 44, 22 and verse 36 reminds us that sufferings such as these and plenty of others are inevitable for all Christians. You know it's coming. Jesus said so told his disciples, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm standing before you today as a pastor, and I'm telling you, and there's others in this room who could testify, the sufferings are coming. Do not be surprised when they come. Do not give in to that defeated, sly 
serpent. He's a fool. It does not mean God doesn't love you. It does not mean God is against you. Even our sufferings, this is the promise of God, even our sufferings will be transformed by the Holy Spirit so that in the purposes of God, you and I might become increasingly conformed to the image of his son. You see, the citizens of the kingdom of God are going to be Christ-like citizens. It's going to be a good time. (laughs) I mean, amazing. Reflecting to the creation. The greater power of love and peace and joy that are found in the Messiah. It's a love and peace and joy that cannot be found anywhere else or explained by anyone else. And so here we see as we close the practicality of the closing verses in Romans 8 to the daily life of a Christian. Got to get pumped up tomorrow. Got, Got work to do. We all do. We are tasked in the providence of God with a vocation, a sacred calling that is ours as his chosen and redeemed people. You you got a job to do. You got a mission to carry out and there's going to be challenges. There's going to be opposition. But given the reality of the gospel of Jesus, we can face the challenge with the assurance that all will be well. The gates of hell will not prevail against the offensive move of Christ's church, Jesus promised. We as citizens of the kingdom of God are invincible. Now, more than invincible, Paul says in verse 37, more than conquerors. How, what is that? It's what Paul knows is true because he had already told us where sin abounded, grace yeah, overabounded. The gift of grace does not merely match and restore what was lost, but makes the final state even better. But you did not hear that. I need a Pentecostal church this morning. (laughs) The final state, precisely because we've fallen and been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, will be better than the Garden of Eden. We're going to live in a city. I like that better. But that, some, some of you are like, oh, it's okay. You could probably plant your garden somewhere in the city. It's going to be better still. Better still. I got some claps. That's, man, we're doing better here. Doing better here. I, under, I know we live in a time and a place where it can be hard to believe this. The growing secularism in the West looks like it's setting Christianity on its heels. So are we actually losing the battle? By the way, if you think you are, then you're not going to be surprised if you find yourself tempted to take up the weapons common to man. You got to start cheating 
find a way to win the election, even if we got to rig it somehow. Yeah, I'm getting a little, yeah, I know, I know. No, <laughs> listen, listen. If you start fighting for the kingdom of God in a way other than the way Jesus called us to fight, worshiping him, giving witness to him with the redemptive power of a cross, the power to die even for your enemies. If we start doing that, we cannot advance the cause of Christ's kingdom. It will never be advanced with the weapons of the world. Never. Never. It's a recipe for disaster, and our Lord will never endorse it. Never. He doesn't need us, by the way. The kingdom of God does not depend on us, but on him. It is his good pleasure to give it to his people. So he's chosen you to work through you. Tomorrow at work, tonight with your families, this week when you gather with your missional family, when we gather together for worship, when we rub shoulders with each other, and it's a glorious privilege we should never take for granted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, O God. You have granted to us and given to us a power the world simply does not know. It is the power of the cross. On that moment when it appeared to the eyes of the world and even to the principalities and powers in dark places that God had lost. And that very moment, just like Jesus with that woman caught in adultery, you were turning the tables. I mean, the Bible says if the enemy had known what God was up to, they would never, he would never have crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> this is a God who is more than a conqueror. And in him, that's who we are as well. Teach us, O oh Lord. Discipline us. Pump us up <laughs> for the challenges that lie ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come